We hear the word science a lot these days. We're told to trust the science as the modern world increasingly elevates science to an almost religious status. Yet for so many students, science class is anything but fascinating, often reduced to a basic level of memorization of facts, periodic tables, and static experiments. Yet classical Christian schools have a unique opportunity to rightly order science as a tool for discovery and inquiry as it was historically understood by educators and leaders for centuries. Well done science inevitably exposes the intricate world around us, reflecting the divine and motivating a person who is willing to look to see the fingerprints of God in the created world. How can our schools and parents leverage science as this extraordinary tool to awaken wonder and discovery in a world that is desperately seeking answers? Join us for this episode of Basecamp Live. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Well, welcome to Basecamp Live. Davies Owens here. Thanks as always for taking time in the midst of your busy schedule to join us. Um, I know some of you are washing dishes right now. Others of you are on a walk. Some of you are driving down the road. Maybe some of you are just paused to have a moment to catch your breath and be encouraged. And we certainly want to be a part of encouraging you on this day. Thank you for the great work that all of you are doing, whether you're a parent, your classroom teacher, your administrator, and the work that God has called all of us to to raise the next generation. And I always appreciate hearing from those of you who are out there listening, whether it's just a quick hello um, or let me know what's on your mind, info at basecamplive.com. I appreciate a note uh, from Pam Lee. She's the enrollment director at Gutenberg College. Pam wrote in, wonderful interview with Matthew Smith. I enjoyed it. Look forward to listening to more podcast episodes. Indeed, these will not age the same way as other podcasts might. They're timeless and important. And Pam, that is a great point. I have always tried to make these, as they call it, evergreen in the sense that you can go back and listen to a, an episode from three or four years ago. And hopefully it's just as important, even relevant today, um, because what we do continues. We are classical. Things don't change, right? But in all seriousness, uh, I do encourage you, if you've not been on the Basecamp Live website, basecamplive.com, there is a little search bar in there. And it's not a perfect system. We're hoping to continue to improve the indexing in there. But you can search on any number of topics that are in your mind or anybody that you think maybe we've interviewed before, and it will search out those interviews and encourage you to go back if you've not done that in a while. There, I know there are a lot of schools that will sort through uh, particular episodes that have or been helpful for maybe new teacher training or just for parents if there's a particular issue on your mind. Um, it's exciting to get to the point where we have such a large index in there to take a look at. At any rate, that's a resource for you. I want to say special thanks on this episode to our sponsors, Union University, Life Architects Coaching, Gordon College, and ADF. That's Alliance Defending Freedom. We really appreciate all that you all do to support us in this movement of classical Christian education and the great work you're doing um, in terms of just providing resources and edu furthering education. And with two of these sponsors being universities, what's, what is the decision you're going to make when you leave 12th grade into 13th? Those are important questions, and there are a lot of great organizations and colleges in our midst I encourage you to take a look at as well. Well, on this episode, we sit down again with Dr. Tim Anstein. He has been on Basecamp a couple of times. It's been about three years since he was last on. I don't know anyone who is more of an enthusiast 
for education and science than Tim. He and his wife are fellow classical Christian uh, parents. Their three children have gone through and are in the Ambrose School in Boise. And uh, he and his wife, Suzanne, are, are great supporters of the great work that we do. Tim is a scientist um, at core. I mean, he has all of the accolades and degrees and all of those things you can read on the bio page on the website, more of those details. He's also spent time in industry. He worked for a company in Menlo Park, California. Um, they developed uh, a really interesting pain drug that uh, is 100 to 1,000 times more powerful than morphine without associated side effects. So you can read about that. So he's been in industry, but more than anything, he's been in the classroom at Northwest Nazarene University in the Boise, Idaho area for over two decades. And he sees students daily in his classroom, and he's seen changes throughout those decades in terms of their their worldview and their approach to just understanding themselves and the world around them. So it's always good to check back in with Tim. He's certainly enthusiastic about science and reminds the rest of us who are not in science every day just the wonder of the scientific world to reveal the hand of God. So whether you're a parent or you're an educator, this episode will be a source of encouragement to you. Let's jump in now to this interview and conversation with Dr. Tim Anstein. Well, Dr. Tim Anstein, welcome back to Basecamp Live. Awesome. It's great to be back. It's so good to have you here. I know I can't believe it's been 2019 since we get to sit down together. It does seem like yesterday, actually. It has been, a, it's been great knowing you just as a friend and a fellow dad here and in the Boise community, yeah. tied into the Ambrose School, but your, your day job over at NNU, yes. Northwest Nazarene University, to talk a, talk a little bit about what you do. I know it's sure. a pretty yes. unique vantage point you have. Yes, I've, I've been an organic chemistry professor for over 20 years now. It's actually 24 years. And uh, I just I have the awesome privilege of, of teaching all levels of organic chemistry. And when I say organic chemistry, of course, that's carbon chemistry. Most people might today misequate organic for, you know, no pesticides or right. you know Pesticide grown, grown healthy right? right no but it's it's just a study of carbon and carbon is st- uh, still i've had a 30-year love affair with this this atom and i'm still just amazed with the complexity the beauty the intricacy of what you can do with one simple atom so that's that's what i've been doing i teach i teach nursing chemistry and organic i teach um, uh, the medical side of organic i teach the chemistry side of organic i teach advanced organic so i teach all the realms of organic chemistry because that is something i'm really passionate about and showing students how it is that we can take this simple little atom, carbon number six, and do absolutely the most incredible things in building these things called life in these human bodies. Yeah. Well, let's talk about two. Just we're going to get into this in your love affair with uh, with an atom, which is <laughs> that may be the first time that's ever been said on this podcast, which is awesome. Um, a fellow classical Christian school enthusiast. Yes. So talk about your family and your kids. Yes, I, we are we are uh, classical Christian for life. All three of my my, my kiddos uh, have started at the Ambrose School since kindergarten. Uh, my oldest now is a junior. My next down, Jesse, is a sophomore. And then my youngest is an eighth grader. And Good. so we're, yeah, we've only, unfortunately, we've only got a couple years left. But uh, we, empty nesting. So yeah. yeah. And it has been an amazing journey. And just to see, once again, how it is that we can take this amazing idea of truth and integrate it into the classroom and then bring it home and continue those conversations, those rich conversations about the way things really are, right? Isn't that what truth is? Everything as it really is. And so we don't, we don't have to check our brain at the door because we can only talk about partial things. We're talking about all truth and total truth. And so from classroom to kitchen table, it has been just a wonderful yeah. journey of richness and seeing, seeing what this classical Christian model has done in, in the lives of our kids. Which is such a, and it's such, must be an interesting contrast for you because you're watching your own kids receive this amazing K-12 classical Christian education. And then you're 
you know, your day job is over in a college setting, kind of 13th grade and up kids coming to, you know, quote, quote, you know, Christian university. Yes. That's a whole nother conversation, but you have a really interesting vantage point of what's happening in terms of over the two plus decades of just where kids are in terms of their mindsets, their readiness, their frames, uh, frames of reference. And so we want to jump into this topic of really looking at science. And I know probably a lot of folks are cheering, like, finally, he's doing another interview on science because, you know, we, by classical Christian, the winds always blow in the direction of, of more the liberal arts, which obviously the quadrivium includes science and other elements, but we don't always do such a good job figuring out what do we do with science? I think it gets sometimes relegated kind of over there like PE. It's like, right. okay, well, we, we did the great we books do. and we, we did the Latin. To the curriculum. Right. And right. Yeah, oh yeah, wait, wait. Oh yeah, oh, yeah we got to do that biology right. chemistry thing before they can graduate. But right. we don't really have any idea what that means in terms of it integrating into a classical understanding. But I think at a more basic level, Tim, I talk about, we, science is another one of those words that's been completely hijacked. I mean, yes. we hear it all the time, especially yes. since COVID. And yes. science is means so many different things to so many different people. Correct. But historically... What did it mean versus what is it right. looking like today? Right. So th- this is one of the things I think we were talking about uh, earlier uh, this yeah. morning. Uh, one, one of the things I really like to do with my students, both at the college level, and I have the privilege of teaching the college and career at our church, uh, is to go back and make sure what we're talking about the same word, right? Using the first law of thought, which is the law of identity. And, and in fact, the name of our class is, what do you mean by that? So let's, if we're going to use a word like faith, what do you mean by that? If you're going to use a word like heaven, what do you mean? Because I, what I'm seeing coming into the college, when, 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 when students leave the, the, the nest and they come to college, a lot of these terms have been thrown around and they don't have a good foundation of what they mean practically. And, and then they don't know how to work that out in their actual journey. So for example, that would be like the word science, like you just said. The word science is a very loaded word. They're actually two completely different realms or domains of science, which is oftentimes not articulated. There's operational science, how things operate, chemistry, physics, gravity, crunchy things like, like iPods and people on the moon and penicillin, to the other realm or the other domain of, of science, which is origin science or how things originated, how the cell originate, how life originate, how did homo chirality originate, the biggest mystery of all science? How did the laws of chemistry make exclusively left-handed amino acids and right-handed sugars? I mean, we that is an absolute conundrum within within the the, the, the chemistry community. We have no clue. I mean, our, our best guess is that it was extraterrestrial seeded, and that sounds really scientific, <laughs> right? So we just, we just blame it on ET. So I, I think to understand that there's two realms of science, there's operational and there's origin science, right? And so what has happened is science has morphed into going down the road of, well, if operational science, if the way things actually operate, if we can figure that out, if we can harness the way that works, that has just led to technology. And it's led, led to toasters and refrigerators and some really nice things. But that level of science has taken us away from, or is moving us away from, the actual true discovery that science was historically. Now, I'm not saying we, we're not using it that way, but we are definitely having a paradigm shift. We're right in the middle of this paradigm shift where we are moving more towards technology as science instead of discovery as science. And, and I believe there's a reason for that, and we can, we can yeah, talk no, about curious, that. Yeah, and that's really interesting because I think you're right. I think there's a... And, and not only just a, a shift away from discovery, but but even a, a veneration of science. I mean, yeah. to the point of, you know, scientists are the new priest of our of our culture in in many ways. That's I think right. in terms that's of, right. um, it, but again, it's I think it's a it's a term and it's an industry that's bantered around without a lot of understanding. So talk yes. about more what when you talk about discovery, because I think that's at the heart of classical Christian education. We're trying to 
give give the ability to a student to uh, become so self-aware to parse arguments to you know explore. I mean, again, it, it, this is always when I'm touting the wonders of classical Christian education. It was out of this Western vein of thinking where you had people that woke up in the morning and said, I'm made in the image of God. The world yeah. is worth discovering. It's yeah. knowable. Yeah. It's not a Buddhist approach. I'm just a drop of water and I'm not really even here. And, you know, no, we really are here and the right. world is worth discovering. And right. so hence look at where all the modern medicine and universities. And I mean, yeah. discoveries came out of that worldview, that perspective. And that's, and that's spot on. I, I, that's, that's why one of my very favorite verses in all the new Testament is John one, one, where, where John introduces his, his God, his friend, his savior, his Jesus as the logos. Right. And we know this from, from classical Christian. That is, that is the rational order. Or I always think of it as the mind of the rationality of this universe. And so when the original scientists were trying to figure out that mind, they were just, they were, like you said, they just wake up in the morning. It was, it was, it was a form of worship. I'm worshiping the glory of this incredible person, the one that spoke, right? Through the sun, we're, we're told that the Father spoke the universe, spoke the particles, the, you know, the, 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 the energy and the light and all these beautiful things at the time into existence. And so it was up for us just to follow that rationality. And what did that lead to? It led to massive breakthroughs in technology. And we've done amazing things with medicines and just cool things like, you know, little gadgets on our wrist and comfort of driving a car around. I mean, there's so many things that we have gone through by following that rational mind. But now we're beginning to morph into now we're worshiping our success and it's going down that road of making technology superior and and really the god of science. And so we're losing, we're, we're, we're moving away from that historical richness of discovering and following a rational mind with our rational mind. So what does that look like in, in the classroom? I mean, again, you're, you're, you basically pick up at 13th grade in college and yeah. you've got students that are coming to you. What, what do you see has changed even in the last few decades in the way that they approach understanding discovery science right. what's different well and i i think it's i think a lot of times it's reduced to just members memorization of a table right they, science then is let's memorize the periodic table let's memorize all the amino acids let's and it's like here is what science is the what of science right we've lost and we're losing that why does it work that way how was that put together where did that come from? The more of the questioning behind it. And so when I invite my students into, in a, say, a GCHEM class, I, I, I show them the periodic table, and I say, look at that thing. Now, how many of you have memorized the periodic table? And, you know, half the class has, half the class hasn't. And I say, well, I'm just going to be honest with you. That's pretty worthless knowledge, mm -hmm. okay? Because I will never give you a test without the periodic table in front of you. And, and so what I would rather do is say, look at that periodic table. View that as a window on that wall. And what's a window for? A window is so we see something through the wall that's bigger than the wall, right? Mm. This window is called the periodic table. And through that window, we are going to see amazing things this semester. We're going to see how the intricacy of these crazy cool atoms like carbon and nitrogen and oxygen literally have this... They, they, it's like they have a, a protagonist and an antagonist war with one another. And it's a cool battle between carbon and oxygen, which leads to these amazing things that we call body parts and, and, and molecules and cells and all these, that's all through these carbon and nitrogen and oxygen interacting, interplaying. That's a window of seeing now the way that the, the creator put this together and we can begin to see how he did that and, and, and answer more questions than just, well, what is carbon? No, how is carbon? Right. Avail available to do these amazing things. And why do you think, I mean, what are some of the reasons why education 
continues to shift away from that? I mean, is it, is it just, we venerate the pragmatism and we just want to get through the textbook and teachers feel pressure. I mean, what are all the factors you see? That- I, I do think a lot of times it is a checkbox of, well, you have to have chemistry to go to college, not, or you have to have X fill in whatever class it is instead of how can I integrate the logos into the periodic table, into this chemistry curriculum. And how can we see his, his creativity, his beauty, his love, his design? Because I tell my students, and they laugh at me, but when I see a, I'll draw a molecule up on the board like morphine, some big complex um, pain drug. And they look at that, and they're looking at me like I'm kind of <laughs> like, I'm weird, but I'm looking at that. Hey, that, that to me is as beautiful as a stained glass window, as, uh, as Mozart's 25th Symphony, that thing, and they're looking at me like I'm literally crazy. I'm like, no, here's why. And then I explain why this structure is, is more, I would say more beautiful than a stained glass window. And, and so that's how I can't keep Jesus out of my chemistry classes because to me, chemistry is meaningless and it makes no sense if it's just reduced to a periodic table right. and a few little particles bouncing off each one another trying to figure out where the electrons go. Yeah, well, I, and just a bit, and I want, I want you to unpack some of these stained glass moments because they are, they are inspiring. And I love that, you know, it's, it's the whole specific and general revelation in, in scripture. And it's like, well, wow, how could you say there's not a God when you just heard that explanation of carbon? Because nobody knew it was that amazing. So we're going to get to that in a moment. But I want to, before we go to a break, just talk a little bit more. I'm just trying to set this up in terms of the the loss of discovery, because again, I think this is is the heart of what's really undermining certainly a lot of yeah. our young, young people today, even that come out of classical Christian schools, well-intended, but maybe yeah the science program was just, again, a, sort of an add-on and a missed opportunity. So you've done, a, I mean, I love the vision of the periodic table as a window. I think that's mm. a beautiful way to look at it. Mm. What do you see are pressures maybe coming from the broader culture that are forcing that view of science? Sure. What, what's going on? Well, I think the yeah. paradigm shift when we, when, you know, really, really, really what, what Darwin brought to the table in the mid, in the what, 18th or 19th, middle of the 19th century, yeah. wasn't that we came from monkeys. What, what really that paradigm shift did for us was it said that, of the, of the three categories by which we look at the universe through the scientific lens of, of law, of um, randomness, and then of design, what, what Darwin really brought together was saying that, look, design's superfluous. We don't need it because law working with chance mimic design. Therefore, we don't need a designer. And we, we had a paradigm shift, and that's why naturalism really is the, the philosophy of science today. And that's, to me, what killed the idea of following a rational mind through my ra- my rational mind to making something rational of the world around us, and so we're, we're it's almost like we 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 move from this art of discovery to now we're playing this stale game that has a bunch of rules, and so well that's no fun. Mm-hmm. If I have all these rules and I know this is as far as I can go on that boundary, what if there's something outside of that boundary? And we we really have lost that. Um, I shouldn't say we, not in the classical Christian. That that's where this this is living, but but the. At large, right, in the, the scientific larger. curriculum of, at large in the nation and the world, we, we now are restricted and we have these crunchy boundaries up that we can't go over that because oh, if you go over that, you're bringing God into the classroom. Right. Well, and then they, they, they have these horrible arguments, like, well, that's just God of the gaps. and that, That's not what it is. It's allowing the data to speak and let it speak. And if it speaks somewhere that's uncomfortable or it's outside of the theory that I've got, well, we need to modify the theory yeah. or we, we need to broaden our theory. We don't need to throw the data out. We right. need to look at what we're actually doing. And, and that, that kind of paradigm shift has really moved us into now, well, don't ask questions, just respond to the correct answer. Right. And, and that's killing, to me, that's what's killing that art of discovery. Yeah. Well, and then, and, you know, obviously there's so many other, the, just the politi- 
politicization of mm-hmm. science where now they're, you know, it's, you're interpreting it now through a, a bias polarized, you know, yeah. whatever it may be, your Western, however that, so we've got all that turning on top of it on too. Of it, right. So why don't we take a quick, quick break. I want to come back. I, I really do want to uh, give you a chance to share some of these remarkable discoveries and kind of help us even because I think we're all kind of part of this cultural moment we're in where it's very easy to be reductionistic about science mm-hmm. and be reminded mm-hmm. again of it is a stained glass window and, and where are some of the ways that uh, we can peer into it and be inspired and bring that inspiration back into the classroom. So we'll be right back with Dr. Tim Anstein. Do you wonder if the traditional system of higher education is the best way to keep your student on the path to flourishing? Are you tired of having to choose between a solid Christian education and practical, marketable skills? We've got good news. You don't have to settle, and your student doesn't have to make the choice between a solid Christian education and skills development. At Excel College, we've combined a world-class, classical Christian education with an apprenticeship model that allows students to gain hands-on experience in the field of their choice while providing them with the context to grow intellectually, spiritually, practically, professionally, and missionally, all the while graduating debt-free. At Excel College, students learn how to build a life, not just make a living. Want to find out more? Sign up for a virtual presentation on our website at www.thexcelcollege.com backslash visit. So Tim, I think one of the things that we classical Christian folks really you know, hold fast to is the fact that there is truth and goodness and beauty and starting with truth that that means there's non-truth, which means we are given, unlike the animals, these rational brains that can Mm -hmm. sort through the fog and make sense of the world. And, Mm -hmm. and, uh, I think science has always been sort of that stake in the ground that said, look, you know, we were laughing earlier. I mean, you, you know, philosophy folks down the hallway, you can navel gaze and talk about angels dancing on heads of pens. We down here just put something in a test tube and I don't care with your naked eyes. You can look at that. That is not arguable. That is the way the world works. And I know, I mean, one of my good friends when I was at Duke and divinity school was a a physics getting his PhD in physics. And and he just, he was, there were more people in the physics department that were discovering these hard facts and becoming believers than in many cases in some of the crazy stuff that was going on in the divinity school. So I just, my question is, is you, it it looks like, you know, that's where we need to continue to hold fast to truth. I mean, truth is, Mm -hmm. is, is bleeds out of every discovery in the scientific world. Is that right? Right. So talk about that. Well, I mean, again, so going back to using that law of identity, I would, the first thing I would say to a student, if I had, was addressed that question is let's talk a sure, let's make sure we're, we're on the same page of what truth is, right? What is truth? And language is, is language, right, right. right. We get lost in word salad and we throw words out like faith and hope and love. And what do you mean by that? So truth, and I would say truth to me is everything as it really is. Right, so if truth. My definition is everything as it really is. Well, where did that come from? Then where did carbon come from? If I want to know the truth of where carbon came from, then I have to extrapolate back to a story. And this is where we got into earlier talking about operational versus origin science. And and Karl Popper is the philosopher, the great philosopher that tried to set the line between these as falsifiability. So if I'm in the lab, like you said, going in the lab working with test tubes and working with molecules, I can falsify those claims. Over here on the other side of it, I'm going to have a really difficult time coming up with the the origin story and falsifying that claim or falsifying homochirality or the origin of the universe, the origin of life. So I, I do think within that idea 
of people that really let the data speak, like your like your physics friends. When you really let the data speak, it really speaks clearly. Mm-hmm. It speaks clearly of order. It speaks clearly of law. And I and I see that being something that we take into the classroom, and we can use that to encourage students especially at the college level where they're starting to try to, well, wait a minute, I was told all these things, I have all this background, but now what? What do I do with this? What is the pragmatic, the practical side of this in my own journey, in my own story? And this is why I do think science then has to be put into its proper place. It has very, it's just really limited to my five, the use of my five senses to discover truth about the world around me. Mm-hmm. So it comes back to that idea of truth. If I'm really going to discover the way things, everything as it really is, then yes, I can use my five senses, but it's not the only way that I can discover the way things really are. But you're saying students, again, are using words that they don't even have definitions. Are they, you have to almost back up a step in your classroom and make sure that the words we're using are or universally understood. We're speaking this. Up, right. We're speak, I mean, example, yeah. right? We were talking about this earlier, that if I say my favorite philosopher was Homer, you know, in the classical Christian movement, everybody's going to be, yeah, the Iliad, the Odyssey, that's why we read it. But I'm, no, I'm talking about Homer J. Simpson, right? He's my favorite philosopher, right? right? So the law of identity is really important there to make sure we're talking about the same thing in the same context, same way, right? That, and again, that's just the basic first one of logic. So it's sure. not even that deep. But what I see is in our culture, students do use words around, we're a community of faith. Well, I always stop and say, well, what do you mean by that? What, what, don't throw a word at me unless we're really clear on what that word means because I think we're losing that art of true conversation yeah. in a rational you yeah. know, framework. And so in the same vein of, of science is is God's revelation. I mean, do you see that happening with, with students that come through your classrooms that are maybe still, maybe they're in a seeker state or they've come through church. I mean, again, we know that 80% Barnett's probably gone way up now that came out of class or Christian schools, classical or otherwise, um, and, uh, are now in the college setting that are now deeply questioning their faith. And let me just clarify. I think, I think classical, nobody's around that number. I think we would have a much better percentage than the general Christian base. But the point is, are you using, or do students in the process of going through discovery of the periodic table and these, these stained glass window moments, is that, it sounds like that's really a, a faith awakening experience for a lot of your own students. It, it is. I think they come to a science class and they think, well, now I can just check my brain at the door with the, the whole religion side of my world because now I'm going to get the crunchy hard facts right. of, of how chemistry works. Yeah. And they've come to the wrong classroom. I think they think that's going to be in my classroom because like I said, I, I can't separate. Jesus is, he is king of my classroom. <laughs> he, he is the, he is the designer of the periodic table. So I, he's not getting thrown out of my classroom. So what, and, and you've told me before, I mean, a lot of times you have students that aren't even have never even taken a science class on the university just coming to see you just saying hey i've got to figure out which ends up and yes. i need help yes and 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 my i have an open door policy um i i just love i my my passion my actual passion on campus whether it's on campus or whether it's um in 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 sunday school class was my own around my own kitchen table i love the tension between faith philosophy and science right i believe that tension that sits there in that middle spot of where where does faith philosophy and science where do they overlap how can i integrate this tension how can i resolve this tension. And it's the same tension, by the way, that the original model of the university came out of, right? Yale, Harvard, and Princeton realized that we have to unify. We have to unify around something. Right. And they realized the only only person with the biggest personality and the biggest presence to unify around was Jesus, right? So to me, when I'm in that classroom setting, I'm just taking those three, faith, philosophy, and science, the, the way we resolve that tension is, well, let's, let's throw Jesus right in the middle of this yeah. and see what happens. And so, and I think that's really foreign to students because like you said, they do come into a chemistry classroom thinking, man, 
Right. I'm just going to learn the hard facts. And right. Then, and but wait a minute, you're talking about Jesus and carbon. Yeah. Oh, let's talk about Jesus and carbon because that is passion. Right. Well, it's interesting that science, to our original point of the conversation here, is is it's safe ground. You can generally talk science, and you know it's it's like you're not supposed to talk about religion and politics, but you can always talk about science. Like that's right. safe ground at any right. Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> right. But. So it seems like it's an interesting, almost kind of from an apologetic standpoint, it really is a doorway into awakening students. And maybe these are students that are in K-12 classical Christian schools that are in great homes and churches, but just reinforcing the beauty of faith. So like the intelligent design movement, I mean, that, you know, that seemed like it was much more in the spotlight a decade or Mm -hmm. so ago. And and again, it seemed like it it fit this to the point of our conversation, Mm -hmm. but it also made assumptions about if given evidence, then any human couldn't but help say, well, what am, I guess I'm going to have to agree with that because it's so... Yes. And But what we're seeing now is, sort of, again, this abdication of even reason and rationalism. So yes. even in the face of screaming obvious evidence, yeah, people are not choosing. What, what are you choose. saying there? Well, yeah. and that goes back yeah. to that whole idea that this naturalistic philosophy now, that is the, you know, it's the axiom of, of all science, we have this hard, crunchy line that we can't cross. And right. that's where the intelligent design movement said, hey, wait a minute, there's a lot of data on the other side of that line. You're telling me I can't cross over. What do we do with that data? Do we ignore the data or do we say the line's in the wrong place? And that's where that largely that, that movement was like, wait a minute, I don't agree that we've got the right model for the origin story. Right. Because the origin story is just that. It's a story, right? So these worldviews compete for one another, but the question is, which one is more logically consistent? Which one is more scientifically rational? And so this whole group of people, scientists were like, wait a minute, you're asking me to believe something that's becoming absurd with when I'm looking at the data, which, again, leads to the leading atheist of the 20th century, Anthony Flew. He finally said, time out, guys. I'm wrong. And he actually went from being an atheist to at least a deist before he died because he realized what we call semiotics, but that's a whole other podcast, which would be fun to do. <laughs> but the information that we're seeing coming out of how DNA is, is, is scripted into this amazing word you don't just have word salad and have rational creatures. This is a very specific word right. that makes this creature. Right. But Anthony Flew at least had the integrity to to say, oh, you know what, I've... I made a mistake. I made a mistake. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that's what we're, we're now in an age of late that, again, I, hopefully not many of our students, but I think the world at large just says, oh, well, you know, yeah, those two plus two is, I guess it is four. But, you know, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. We're yeah, not going to do really four. Matter. I don't care about four anymore. Yeah. And that's now you have literally checked the brain at the door. Yes. I mean, and what do you do in that instance? I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, that, well, and and I, and that's where I do think it's important to give specific, concrete examples of. And again, not necessarily for the people to throw bricks at other people with these examples, but to say, wait a minute, this is for you personally. How have you resolved the tension between your the story that you've been told your whole life that two. I don't want to go too organic on you, but <laughs> the two organic molecules got together in a warm little pond. And they form this beautiful little thing called a polymer. And I'm looking at them saying, do you guys understand the story here? Let's look at the actual science. When you're in water, you're making a polymer that's removing water. It's called a dehydration reaction. But you're doing it in water. And Leishatier's principle says, no, you're going the wrong way. You don't make complex molecules in water. Complex water, the molecules want to fall apart. So the whole narrative is going in the wrong direction. And so I'm asking, what, at what point do you say, that's absurd? Right. You're asking him to believe something that's illogical in science. And I could give you multiple, that's just one cheesy little example, but the problem of pol- polymerization in an aqueous solution, oh, so then how do we resolve the tension? Oh, well, it happened on a dry, next to a crusty volcano. I'm like, well, wait a minute, now now you've got other problems, right? So it's like <laughs> right. the, the story just keeps changing at a convenient level, not 
at a rational, using science and the laws of chemistry to actually lead and guide the narrative. Yeah, and that's that leading and guiding the narrative is exactly what I think we do well in classical Christian schools. Absolutely. And that's the thing that, in contrast, in the science classroom down the street has been abandoned yes. in favor of just raw data, right? Just memorize it. Right. The best minds out there say this is the way it is. That's the way it is. Don't question it. Right. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Right. That, that, that's not using my, my, right. right. You were talking early about the, the our, our truth and our brains and I, I just, just, yeah. just like the kidneys, you know, in the liver, we all have a function to me. The brain is an organ that process truth, right? That's to me, it's the truth function, right? It's the truth, uh, <laughs> um, uh, piece of my body. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing that, but I love that it, just the example of, you know, I, I always heard that lightning hit this swamp and these mm-hmm. tadpole things became sprouted legs and they yes. came on the ground. And then, you know, eight yes. bazillion years later, here we here are. Here we are. Here's the human mind <laughs> yeah. able to contemplate that. That's right. You're, it's, <laughs> I'm feeling worse about myself. I'm, <laughs> know, right? I'm a two-legged tadpole. Ted, or tadpole, right. And, but you're right. But if you could just like just freeze on any aspect of that is so full of inconsistencies and, you know, yes, you know, the, just the whatever the old mousetrap thing and intelligent yes. design, just, you know, the yes. law of well, diminishing. And, yeah. and, and, you know, going back to that whole th- th- this is really important because I'll have students I, I do in my class. I, I call it free for all Friday. OK, and I, I spend the first 10 minutes in all my classes. 10 to 15 minutes, you guys can ask me any question as long as it, <laughs> long as it's in the tension between faith, philosophy, and science. Nice. Because that's the questions they have, right? Where else are you going to be able to have this resolved? Ask the question, right, if you want to know. And so that word evolution comes up on a regular basis. It must. And yeah. so I have to say, hold on. That is a very loaded term, okay? There's at least five working definitions of that word. So which version are you? And they're looking at me like, what do you mean there's fun? No, no. There's a lot. <laughs> change over time, descent with modification. I can just tell you all these, but no, when a true scientist today, quote unquote, uses that word, it's a very specific word. He's saying, he or she is saying from nothing to the human mind. So now you've got a big story to explain to me how you went from in the beginning, there was nothing. And out of the nothing is all this emerged all the way up to the human mind. Okay. Now we've got to talk. We've got to talk about the steps that got us there. And yep. that's where as a chemist, an organic chemist, I have so many steps in there that just you can't, because of the laws of chemistry, not even my faith, it's the laws of chemistry don't work. Right. It's completely right. antithetical. Is that the right word? Opposite a- of antithetical, antithetical yeah. to my, the rational chemistry working right. laws that I know yeah. happen in my laboratory. So if all goes as good, optimally in a K-12 classical Christian science environment, you're teaching them these laws of science rules of discovery mm-hmm. so that you would hear that argument and not just oh i don't like evolution but be able yes. to okay well, let's take there are actually five versions of, of evolution let's yes and you're really again applying thoughtful rational exploration i mean at some point yeah if somebody's just going to be lunatic and say two plus two is eight and who i'll cares? believe it no matter what yeah right. chances are they'll say that but in their quiet moments they're like yeah it is really four and i'm not sure what i'm thinking about my life but i yes. i just think this is what I love about what you're saying is we're we're not just teaching kids to you know learn logic and reason quote, reason well. We're teaching them really a methodology yes. that is desperately needed in this world today. That science is everywhere. So again, I think science could be a really natural entry point for a conversation because it's Absolutely. acceptable. But within that, what are we going to do about it? So That's right. I, before we get a break, I want to just I want to I keep going back to the stained glass window. 
give us a, maybe talk a little bit about carbon. Yeah. And this may be something that we'll have to keep going <laughs> after the break. But just again, this is just for the average. Yeah, I took chemistry, you know, 40 years ago or whatever. Uh, and he's going to start talking about SP3 hybridized orbitals and all this yeah, stuff. But right. I have to, right? Yeah, That's yeah, give me a. Actually, you know what? Let's. This is so good. <laughs> so, let's take a quick break because this is. We're, I don't want to interrupt you on this because this is really uh, inspiring. So if you just need a boost in your faith today, you need to hear Dr. Einstein talk about carbon. We're going to be right back after this break. It's time for another quick classical Christian Q and A with Dr. Tim Dernlin. So, Tim, the question is, what is a senior thesis presentation? You know, a lot of schools begin in the grammar school with a speech meet, and then they have opportunities throughout uh, well, throughout the whole K-12 process of helping students learn to speak well and write well. But the senior thesis is kind of the grand finale, and in most schools, they're having to literally write this very ambitious paper and do all the citations and then stand in front of a panel and defend themselves. Why do we expect such a high level uh, from our seniors in this thesis presentation? Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned how it really builds up to it. It's not just one event that they do their senior year. Um, so it is in the culmination of the rhetoric stage. And so there is the writing component of rhetoric and the speaking component of rhetoric. And a lot of schools will take the students through the, the five canons of, of classical rhetoric, but it really, really helps the students to learn how to research to learn how to write, to learn how to use their logic skills and form an articulate argument and then present well. And that presentation, that communication piece is so valuable and one of the most uh, critical pieces and a hallmark of a classical Christian education. So um, it's not just from grammar school speech meets. A lot of times throughout the day in grammar school, students will have to stand and, and, and uh, recite a Bible verse or a poem and or give a presentation. And then if they're involved in a, a required theater or debate or logic is obviously required, those build on those rhetoric skills and, and all culminate into that uh, senior thesis presentation. And a lot of times it's in front of judges and um, you have to defend in the moment, all your, uh, your reasoning and argumentation. And a lot of the ones I've seen Davies are as uh, as rigorous as the the doctoral defense and <laughs> dissertation that I went through, I know you went through that as yep. well, and it's just it's neat to see. And and when the kids are in ninth and tenth grade, uh, or maybe sixth, seventh, the parents get nervous and say, "My kid will never be able to do that." And then they do; they rise yeah. up and they do it. <laughs> well, and it's a, it's a great antidote too to the concern that classical Christian kids are kind of boxed over in the liberal arts corner, and you know, will make great librarians someday or baristas or whatever they're going to end up doing. And it's no actually what job out there in the modern world doesn't want an employee that can think and speak and write well. This is just so basic and so immediately a differentiator of so many other people that are graduating other schools these days. So I think it's a, it's amazing and critical and um, definitely come, come, even if you've got young kids, come sit in and watch a senior thesis each year. Those are, those are impressive. Like you said, useful for all of life, not just a job, but everything you do in life. What, when don't you need to uh, present and communicate well? That's good for podcasts too, by the way. So, <laughs> there <right>. you go. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Ben. Thanks, Davies. Check out Dr. Dernland's book on 100 questions on classical Christian education. Got a question for him to answer on Basecamp Live? Send the question to info at Basecamp Live or leave us a message by voice or text on the Basecamp hotline. 833-595-2929. That's 833-595-2929. We look forward to hearing from you. So Tim, we've been holding our breath over the break. 
<laughs> to figure out what on earth is so exciting about carbon because unfortunately carbon today is isn't that a bad thing isn't yeah. carbon a footprint that we don't want to have and you're excited yeah. and god's in the carbon yeah i know you've you've talked to us before but yeah awaken us to this why carbon is so amazing. what in the world are you so geeking out over here about <laughs> that is a great question because my, my i actually had a student just a couple of years ago give me a mug and she had three things on it because i tell my students I love Jesus, I love people, and I love carbon. And, 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 and she actually have a mug that she wrote all three of those. Oh, was really my gosh. Cute. But I do. There's this, this Carbon, to me, is the most fascinating atom, and here's why. It sits, it sits on the most, or in the most unfortunate location in the entire periodic table. And it's even worse than silicon, which is, if you, if you know any chemistry, it's right below it. Carbon sits in this, literally, this, this thermodynamic well, and it looks up to its left and it says, okay, I've got to shed four electrons to be noble going that direction. I've got to gain four electrons to become noble going in that direction. So it literally sits there in this literally horrible location, much worse than any atom next to it or below it or above it. And there's, there's none above it. <laughs> but with that whole idea of where it sits, carbon, because of that, is the absolute best share of electrons. Now this is all geeky, this is really chemistry, but this makes it such a powerful atom because it can look out to its left and it can share with another carbon, and if it looks out to its right, it can share with another carbon up above a share, and when it shares completely with four other carbons, it begins to build this lattice, and the lattice, as long as it's in a certain hybridized orbital we call it sp3, it builds this carbon lattice, and it's the strongest structure that we have, it's diamond. But the beauty is not carbon. Carbon's this black, gray, sooty kind of stuff. But when it forms this lattice through heat and temperature, what happens is now it's, it enables light to shine through it to the world around it, which is why we love diamonds. But it's simply carbon. It's mm. not the carbon. It's what carbon is allowing the light to do through it. Mm. And to me, you can't come up with a better picture of the church, mm -hmm. right? When we are all universally locked arms, loving one another like we're called to, what are we doing? We're reflecting Jesus through us to the world around us. And the world wants us. It wants that light. It wants that diamond. Yeah. And that to me is why when I look at carbon, and that's just one example of many I could give you of why I think carbon is the most amazing atom on the periodic table. So that is, <laughs> that is impressive. No, it, it, I mean, all you had to say was you can get to a diamond and I think people are like, okay, all right, now I get it. <laughs> and isn't that interesting? What it's something that looks so, you know, the street, impression if you ask someone what do you think of carbon it's negative it's sooty it's this yeah. yeah something not desirable and yet it is the raw ingredient behind a diamond i mean it is a very gospel type message yeah. there in, in and yeah. of itself so if you had to just kind of on your you know give us a handful of other stained glass window oh my goodness you thought it was this but it's really that it, it reflects yeah. god what do you what what do you see from from your vantage okay, point. Okay, so the, the biggest stained glass window, I'll just give you the biggest Yeah, just one. give me the bigger. It's called homochirality. Now, this gets this is probably one of also the most difficult concepts to understand of all chemistry, so I don't want to go too geeky down this road. But the laws of chemistry, when you do a reaction, the laws of chemistry give you a perfect mixture of 50% left-handed and 50% right-handed. Right? That's it. That's the laws. The laws of chemistry are blind. But yet, when you look at how carbon comes together in the human body, all the amino acids other than glycine, it's achiral, are... Le exclusively left-handed, not not like 98 to 99-1, 100-0, all right? That's improbable. It's not even improbable. We have no way to just, just to literally explain that through the blind laws of chemistry. They say, no, when this reaction occurs in the warm little pond next to the volcano, 
or even on the tip of a meteorite, wherever you want to put it, right. the laws of chemistry say, no, when I do this reaction, you're going to have 50% left-handed and 50% right-handed. So why is it that all life, all life, from all the way from fungi to the human brain, we have exclusively left-handed amino acids building the proteins and the enzymes that are all life? That, to me, is by far, and it, it's still not just, this is my opinion, this is the problem of all problems with the story from nothing to the human mind. Mm. It, is, it comes back through the problem of homochirality because the only way I can distinguish between a left-handed and a right-handed, and by the way, what, there's two molecules with the exact same molecules other than the mirror images. One smells like mint and one smells like dill. Okay, how do I put those together? One's left-handed, one's right-handed. Well, my nose has chiral receptors in it that can distinguish between that. Well, wait a minute. Where'd the chiral receptors come yeah, from yeah. in the blind laws of chemistry? Right. So this, to me, just shows the beauty and the creativity right, of the mind that said, no, I'm going to have one left-handed version and a right-handed version. One's going to smell like dill. One's going to smell like peppermint. This is so one of those stained glass moments where you're like, well, thank you, Lord, so much for receptors right. in my nose right. that can distinguish between a pickle and a peppermint stick. Yeah. You know, it's just like, wow, that is crazy cool. And it's all built by carbon. I just, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, isn't it called the, the law of irreducible complexity? complexity yeah. And I think that that's kind of to your, to your point, like you, you know, this idea that things just sort of evolved to the next thing of, of sophistication, but there's certain stopping points where like, no, it had to already be that evolved. Yeah. The flagellin motor had to be yeah. running on the back of the cell in order for it to move to get to the next thing. So yeah. there's you, no you other have explanation. A partially functioning motor, you, you right? Can't, right? <laughs> I don't think that you can't just yeah. kind of show up with it half built. It it, it had yeah. to have been built to move forward. Yeah. So and I have like I said, we could we could spend you, a long. time. You got to write a book on this. <laughs> well, let's do this because I, I I know you know uh, the audience listening. We've got a. a a mix, probably about 50-50 of parents in classical Christian schools that I hope are hearing this thinking, oh, okay, so, you know, good reminder that that biology chemistry class, which my kids are struggling with right now, is not just a means to get to college, to get to the pre-med thing, right? Yes, I mean, th yes. there is, there is, and if, and, and the teachers are listening saying, well, wait a minute, maybe I was taught. Most, again, we were, we tend to teach the way we were taught. Right. And we probably weren't taught in a very dynamic way to teach science. So we're at risk probably yeah. as teachers of passing yeah. forward these bad habits. Yeah. So speak, let's start with parents. What, what advice, you had a room of parents in front of you and you know their kids are <laughs> taking these classes. What would you say to them? What are some words of encouragement? Yeah, I, I would. I, I am a big proponent. You know, this just hanging out together through the years of of getting getting more of a presence of science in the classical Christian model. That's one of my passions because I am a scientist and I want that science to be in there. I also would say yes, it's important to push that, but it's also important to really teach the limits of science and what science really is and what it isn't. And I, and I think that's so important so that we can use science. Mm -hmm. the way science was intended to be used, and that is to discover more of the beauty of the way Jesus built this place and put this together and to bring glory back to him. And so not just a means to an end, because, yeah, i got to cross off biology, chemistry, and physics to get to X number of schools or whatever, but to really allow science to reflect that glory and that beauty, mm -hmm. that creativity, that awe-inspiring moment of the sunset or stained glass window. Yeah. And that to me is what science is. Yeah. And I agree with you, so oftentimes it's not. It is just memorize this, memorize that, know this, know that. Not why am I and how and all those big questions. So so thinking again, we're, we're two audiences, we're talking about teachers in a moment mm -hmm. and how they make the classroom more alive in that way. But to the parent, especially if they're a parent and maybe the school hasn't you know, isn't all the way there yet. And they're, yeah, st they're yeah. still maybe tending towards like, oh my gosh, my child's 
pulling their hair out, they're memorizing the whole periodic table yeah. here. What can the parent, I mean, what questions can they ask? What, you know, what, what maybe some dinner time conversations, what might yeah. things look like to, to lean in this better direction of discovery? Yeah. And I, and I, I, again, I think just first off awareness, right? We need to be, be aware of what, what are we actually doing in this chemistry class? Right. Right. Why am I take? Why do I care about the periodic? Even my daughter last night, I was quizzing her on the first fifty elements of the periodic. And to be honest with you, you're never going to need this. Right? Well, even though I have a PhD in chemistry, I had to look at the back and cheat on a couple of them because I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute, antimony? What was antimony? Oh, that's right, SB. You know. But but again, what? Why are we doing this, Jesse? What what is what is the practical side of what am I memorizing this towards? And right. is it is it just so that I'm a better chemist, or is it so that I really can see something through? The periodic table. Yeah. See something through, right? C.S. Lewis was the one that said, what's the purpose of a window? Well, seeing something through the wall. Right. Right? And so, but if we just leave the periodic table on the wall, we're not seeing through it. Right. And so I would, those conversations around, how can I see something bigger? Yeah. Right? I'm yeah, doing this memorization. At one point, I knew all the muscles on the cat. I can't tell you one of those <laughs> muscles today. Right? How could I have been taught to use the muscles of that cat? In a way that I today could remember that, yeah. right? The sticky, the sticky moments, the right. the aha moments, the those moments that right, the story that's going to really grip my emotions. How can I bring that yeah. into my classroom? So is it until you write the book, which I really want you to do, or where you where you <laughs> and call it the stained glass windows? And yeah. I mean, I think honestly, it'd be an amazing book. Are there folks that have written books like that? I mean, if I'm a parent, I'm yeah. thinking, I just need to be reminded because I don't know these stories. I'd yes, The Signature of the Cell would be an aha book, but again, it's almost a thousand pages and it's deep science. Okay. You know, there is a need There is a need for a lighter reading right. at this level. And to my awareness, the, it's not there. It's right. not there. Not okay. there at least than those that I could recommend right. or I would mean, recommend. I mean, I know the intelligent design community, again, there's there's all yep. kinds of, oh, wow, look at the yes. flagellum motor kind yes. of things. But again, just sort of in the context of teaching biology or teaching chemistry, where do these... One of the things I have tried to encourage, and I've talked with Wade and Goodwin, and, 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 and I think you at one point... We read, let's see, we, we read Darwin's Black Box. We read The Origin of the Species, two fantastic books. I would add a third to that those, okay. in our curriculum. I really would put Philip Johnson's mm. um, Darwin on trial. And, mm -hmm. and here's why. Philip Johnson uh, it was an acquaintance of mine. He was at, we were both from, at Berkeley, and, and I brought him up to speak at our school 20 years ago. I mean, I think it was yeah. 1999 when I brought him up. Great person, but he was the father of the intelligent design movement. And when he, that whole thing started from that book, Darwin on Trial. And it fits so perfectly into what we are doing and teaching them logic and rhetoric and reason and all these tools. And that's exactly what Philip Johnson does. He goes back through and he tries yeah. this theory in a court of law. That would be a great one. And if we don't put it in our curriculum, at least the people in the community that are listening, that's a great one to pick back up and dust off and 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 look at that again. And it's not and it's a more accessible book. Right? It's a very accessible right. book. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah, he's not a scientist. Right. He's you know, he's a law professor. Right. And I think that's again sort of the parents to that audience it, it would say, yeah, gosh, I, I'm embarrassed to say I don't even remember any of this. So, I mean, this is yes. a great place to start. Until, yes. Okay. Until you write yours. Okay. So, <laughs> so let's turn it. So you, you kind of got a little bit into, into classrooms and teachers, but I mean, what, and maybe, you know, are there other building on that? Are there other curriculums that you would recommend? Because again, I think a lot of times that is the basic problem is that classical Christian schools are having to go get the industry standard, mm -hmm. you know, textbook that's either yeah. stripped of anything discovery oriented or laden with evolution stuff. So yeah. are there better, there must be better books that you'd recommend to be read. I think you have to augment. I don't think there is an actual, to my knowledge, mm -hmm. an actual textbook that I could use 
Now, now I'm in a little different world. I'm in the falsifiable side of the world. So, so my general yeah. chemistry, my organic chemistry text, we don't, we don't get that much of that. But over here in your origin story, your, or, you know, your biology side of life, you're going to get a lot of that. So how do we, I wouldn't say don't read. I think we need to know that theory even better. Because sure. once we understand the theory, we're like, holy mackerel. <laughs> you're still asking me to believe this you're dead theory? Per, you are people of faith. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> you talk about faith, right? Talk about trust and the truth with them. So I would say augment that, like exactly what we're doing. Read uh, Darwin's Black Box. Read Darwin on Trial. Get into some of these really, really excellent, excellent tools yeah, yeah. that are available. Augment the curriculum. Because I, I, to my knowledge, like I said, and I, I don't know the curriculums all over the United States, but to my knowledge, there's not just one, here's a science yeah. curriculum that would follow more of an intelligence design model. So let's take the current and then augment it yeah. with, with really good Well, really I think what's, it, from insight. my experience as high school, I mean, you end up in these situations where like, well, we could use the Bob Jones curriculum because it's got the faith thing, but man, the science is painfully incorrect. It, yes, right. yes. I, I, and so you, run, could go down you, that, you yes. crash on the other side of the ditch. You, exactly. Right, exactly. So, so, okay, and then, so finally, just with regard to if you had a room filled with teachers and you were just mm -hmm. saying, hey, Again, I think we've covered a lot of this already, but just are there other just kind of encouragements, best practices yes. that we haven't mentioned? I, I don't know about that. Again, that's yeah. a, that's a, a, a each to, to each their own. But behind my door, I think we talked about this in in, yeah. in, in nineteen. I have a, a fortune cookie taped to the back of my door every time I go out of my door <laughs> of my office, and it says, "Education is not filling buckets; it's igniting fires." Mm. And I take that to heart and I'm like okay I could fill a bucket and I could explain to them all 118 atoms and why chemistry is really simple because all we're doing is coming from 100 or from 1 to 118 that's all chemistry is by the way it's not very difficult everyone can count from 1 to 118 so why does chemistry become so difficult we make it difficult so how do I how do I inspire how do I and that's the whole idea of a stained glass window or using the periodic table as a window to something bigger right. how do I inspire a student who might have come in with not such great chemistry, not liking chemistry, how do I take that student and say, I'm going to ignite a fire in you. Yeah. I want you to see why it is that I'm so passionate about Jesus and carbon. And at the end of my semester, most of the, my students do come around and say, okay, I still don't understand everything we talked about, but I at least appreciate your perspective on why this is something way bigger than a chemistry classroom. Yeah. And do you think part of the, the resistance, if someone's teachers are listening, is just how am I going to have time for that? Because mm -hmm. I, I think again, again, stereotyping, but I think too often as classical Christian schools, we take, we, we take, um, uh, you know, the, the, the volume of, or the qu quantity over the quality of it. Mm -hmm. And, and I think we do that certainly with, Oh, we read 50 great books. Well, maybe yeah. you should have read 30 and really and savor them, them yeah. process them. And I wonder too, if there's, it's probably the exact same challenge is if we're going to have room for discovery and inquiry mm -hmm. and Friday questions, I mean, gosh, you could use that Friday to jam, you know, five more teaching points, you but bet. you're allowing the students just to ask questions. I mean, yeah. it yeah. seems like the school, and this goes back to academic deans, it goes back to, you know, decision makers of curriculum. I, I think it's probably time for some reevaluation of, of where those of time allocations how, right, and objectives pedagogy, are. How, how do we teach yes, this? Yes, right. And, you know, not just, again, not fill buckets, but how do we inspire? And that, right. that to me is the art of teaching. Yes, yeah. is, is that inspiration that moment? We 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 know our good teachers and our bad teachers when we look back, and and probably we could make a somewhat of a line between the ones we mm -hmm. didn't really like were bucket fillers, yeah, and those that we were like, wow, that was one of my favorite. Was probably an inspirer, right? right? They're, they're, so we we can see that. But I think some of the bucket fillers are there because they really want to be, you know, honoring of what they were asked to deliver. Right. And we need we need our buckets filled. I, I want to make, make that clear, right? Of, right. We're but, not saying that. Yeah, and I think I think in inspiring, oftentimes we're like I want to go fill my bucket now, right? It's them, right. Wanting to, I want to understand this. Yeah. Wait a minute. I didn't ask you. Yeah. You're, you're now, you're doing that on your own. Not me saying you need to do it. Right. 
No, I think it's more just a case of are there just a challenge to schools to say, are you lay out your, your entire scope and sequence for the year? And are you, you know, maybe we don't need to teach these three other things yes. to make room for yes. that discovery. So yeah, I, I, I cut, yeah, I cut chapters out cause I'm looking at this going, okay, this is just, there's no way No, they're already drinking from the fire hose right. in their, in their educational system. Right. So it's like, well, they don't need this. This isn't, this isn't going to get them down the road for the real core of what they need. Right. But again, the problem is I think all the, especially when you get into students that seem serious about science tend to have this long, you know, reasonable, I want to be a doctor. Therefore I've got to get this done to mm-hmm. get to that, to get to this, yep. to get to that. And so yep. again, all of these put pressure on, on, you know, jamming yep. and cramming to get through the versus discovery, That's which right. is again, hopefully in a K-12 context, it's at the beginning of all of that craziness. Right. So you can slow it down enough. To, That's right. Well, I mean, yeah. you just, you look at, we talked about missional drift. You look at textbook drift, right? Right. When I took organic chemistry, it was like 280 pages. Now it's up over 400 pages. Well, what did they add, right? <laughs> well, what are the, if, if I don't know an SN1, SN2 reaction, that's kind of the core of chemistry, of organic at least. Right. What did you add with those extra 200 pages now that I have to go through and read or memorize or the teacher has to get through? So it's kind of, what is core? Right. And what is not? Right. And, and so when you have textbook drift... I that's need to really real, interesting, right? Yeah. I need to realize that I don't have to teach everything in <laughs> no, this book. No, that's true. I mean, go back ten years ago. What were we teaching? Now, if it's outdated, like biochemistry, I would never teach from a twenty-year-old biochemistry book because we've learned so much more in twenty years. Right. But organic chemistry hasn't changed that much in twenty years. Carbon so, still number six. Carbon is still number six. There you and go. It's still my favorite. <laughs> very good. Well, then we're at time. Thank you so much again for. Uh, this very illuminating and inspiring conversation. Um, I can't wait for your book on uh, on on, uh, on stained glass windows in science because there's going to be a lot of folks eager to hear those great stories. So thanks for your inspiration. All Thank right, you. we'll have you back again. Hopefully, it won't take three years before the next interview. But uh, thanks, Tim. Thank you. Hey there, Basecamp Live listeners. This is Davy's daughter, Hannah, here. And I want to congratulate this amazing podcast on almost five years of incredible content, enriching interviews, and over 200 episodes. So that has brought so much encouragement to people. And thank you for being a part of that. Thank you for supporting this message, this mission. And there are a couple ways that you can help in sharing that message. First of all, please leave a five-star review on whatever app you are using to listen to this podcast. You can also share it with a friend. That's a great way to get the message out about Basecamp Live. And of course, share your story with us at info at basecamplive.com. There we'll also answer all your questions and more. And any topics that you'd like to hear too, please send them there to info at basecamplive.com. We'll see you next week, everybody. Thanks.